There's a crisis of busyness in Western society. People struggle to switch off. Smartphones mean we're never away from work. Stress leave, mental health problems, anxiety are more common than ever before. Automation and computerisation were supposed to give us more free time, but instead most of us fill our life with so much activity we don't actually have time to enjoy it. Work, family study, even hobbies, exercise and meeting with friends are attacked with relentless energy and focus. Many of us are either frantic or exhausted or both. The sad truth is that for many of us, busyness is worn as a badge of honour. It's a measure of our worth and significance. Uh, The first thing most of us say in answer to the question, how's life or how's work been this week, is busy. I wonder what would happen if we actually said, it's been really restful actually. Uh, The temptation, I think, is to think that if you're not busy at work, then you're not worth employing, you're not pulling your weight. If your life isn't busy, you must be a loser. Uh, Tim Crider, in a well-often-quoted essay from the New York Times, The Busy Trap, makes the point that busyness is a choice. Uh, We complain about being busy, but we got that way because of ambition or anxiety or our identity being wrapped up in what we do. He says, busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. So what about you? Is your life more striving than stillness? More restlessness than rest? more frantic than faith. God doesn't want us to be busy, at least not in the sense of striving, of restlessness and fear and anxiety, of finding our identity and meaning in what we do or achieve or earn. Instead, God wants us resting and rejoicing in him, rejoicing in the truth that he's made us for his glory, He saved us by his grace through his Son. God created the world in six days and then he rested on the seventh. And his world reflects that. His world is a natural rhythm of six days to work and one day to rest. And when we rest, we are trusting God. Resting is consciously handing over control. Enjoying the world God's made, enjoying that he is the creator and the sustainer and we are not. We enter into his rest as we do that. Uh, King David knew the peace of resting in God, of trusting him rather than in striving. David wanted Israel to know it as well, so he wrote Psalm 131. It's short, it's sharp, it's engaging, it's inviting us into David's experience. He writes, My heart is not proud, O Lord, My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have stilled and quieted my soul 
Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. David knew that he could only be still when he consciously put his hope in God. You see, quieting your soul is an expression of trust. Now I want to suggest that that's the goal for us. And Hebrews 3 and 4 this morning gives us some hints about how we can achieve it. Now, if that sort of rest appeals to you, if you're thirsty for that sort of rest, if that sounds enticing, then can I suggest you listen up? (laughs) Remember, Hebrews is a message specifically for a group of Jewish Christians. They're in danger of giving up their faith in Jesus and going back to their Old Testament ways. Uh, Now, today's passage, it's, it's complicated. You have to keep in mind a couple of jumps in time and at least three different time periods uh, before you can catch the main point. It begins chapter 3 verse 7 with a long quote from Psalm 95. It's a psalm about Israel wandering in the wilderness before they enter the promised land. But it's a psalm King David wrote hundreds of years later looking back. Looking back to the time when God promised to bring his people into the promised land and he called that a place of rest. And God said at the time, trust me, I will take you to a land of milk and honey. I'll be your God, you'll be my people and together we'll be able to rest. It'll be just like the Garden of Eden. It'll be just like the seventh day when we rested together. Now that was the promise. But what did the people do? Well, as soon as things got the slightest bit tough, they started to grumble. As soon as they got scared or thirsty or hungry, they started saying, Oh no, we'd rather be slaves back in Egypt. God brought us here to kill us. They didn't trust God's promise. God said, I will defeat the enemies in the land for you, but they said, No, we're scared. They're too big. They'll defeat us. We'll die. And so God sends them back out into the desert for another 40 years until they died, just like they feared. A whole generation didn't enter God's rest in the promised land. Now that's the story David writes in Psalm 95 hundreds of years later. And hundreds of years later, he wants to teach a lesson to his own generation, time period number two. So look at verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 3. Quoting Psalm 95. Uh, So as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That's why I was angry with that generation and I said their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So David is saying, back then, God's people missed out on God's rest, on entering the promised land. Why? Because their hearts were hard. Their hearts went astray. And I'm warning you today, it would be a terrible thing to miss out on God's rest. Now, do you see the problem? It must have seemed odd to the people of Israel as they sang this psalm or as they heard David sing it because when David's talking, they're already in the promised land. 
Moses' generation missed out, but in the end, by David's time, they're actually in the promised land. They've got a king, they've defeated their enemies, they've entered rest. The the rest that Moses' generation was looking forward to. And yet David says to them, today I want to warn you, don't make the mistakes of the past, don't stop short, don't fail to enter God's rest. And so what that means is there must be another rest that David's thinking about. A rest that's beyond living at peace in the promised land. A rest which is still to come. A rest that is more than just your postcode or how many hours you work in a week. Now that's the point that the preacher who writes Hebrews makes a bit further on down in chapter 4 verse 7. Therefore, God again set a certain day. He's thinking not just for Moses. God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God wouldn't have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So those are the two different time periods, Moses, David. But then, of course, there's a third time period when Hebrews is written and the writer to the Hebrews wants to warn his readers. Now we come to that in verse 12 of chapter 3. Not Moses talking to Israel, not David talking to his people, but the Hebrews writer talking to his listeners. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be pardoned by sin's deceitfulness. We've come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. Moses, Israel, their problem was unbelief. They didn't trust God's promise. His promise to bring them into rest And so the writer says, make sure you don't have that same unbelieving heart they had, that you don't turn away from God. And he says that's a group task. You don't do it by yourself, stuck at home. You come together and you encourage one another. Encourage one another daily, today, tomorrow, the day after. Because it doesn't matter that you trusted God yesterday... You have to trust God to the end. You have to hold on to your confidence, which means holding on to Jesus, our pioneer, our leader, our brother who rescues us by dying and living again. When we turn away from Jesus, whom God offered, you're actually turning away from God. You're not trusting him. So the Hebrews writer says, don't be like Israel who missed out because of unbelief. And then when we come to chapter 4, we come back to this idea of rest that's just been hinted at so far. And we zoom in on what it means to enter God's rest. So chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also had the gospel preached to us, just as they did, just as Moses' generation did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Learn the lesson 
from Moses Israel. They had good news preached to them, God's promise that he would bring them into the land, but they didn't trust it. They didn't combine it with faith. So they fell short. Make sure that's not you. When you hear the message, believe it. And when you do verse 3, have a look. Now we who have believed enter that rest. When we trust God, we enter rest. So that begs the question, I guess. Here's the big question, the $64 question. What's the rest? Perhaps it's heaven. Our eternal rest. When we believe, we enter heaven. Back in chapter 14, sorry, uh, verse 14 of chapter 3, it seemed to suggest that. Uh, Verse 14 of chapter 3 says, We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end our first confidence. So it seems to suggest that the, the, the rest is at the end. Keep trusting God in this life and you'll make it to your eternal rest. Now that's certainly true. We will rest then. And lots of opinions think that that's the only sort of rest Hebrews is talking about here. But I think there's more to it than just eternity. Notice verse 3 of chapter 4 says that those who have believed enter that rest, present tense. Not will enter that rest, future. You see, as we believe, we actually enter rest in this life. There is rest that we have in this life. So what does that rest look like? Well, if you jump down a bit further to verse 9 of chapter 4, we read it before. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. We actually get a different word for rest here. Um, Chapter 4, verse 9, Greek lesson number 2, we had a Greek word last week, I think. Uh, We've got a Greek word again this week. The the Greek word is sabbatismos. Uh, It's the only place in the whole New Testament where that word's used. And it actually is a transliterated, it's just copying Hebrew letters for the word for rest uh, that Sabbath comes from, or Shabbat in Hebrew. Uh, Shabbat is what God did on the seventh day of creation. At the end of day six, God saw all that he'd made. It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, it says, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing, so on the seventh day, he Shabbat, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he Shabbat, Shabbated from all the work of creating that he'd done. But notice, there's actually no end. There's no sign-off of day seven. There's none of that formula that says, and there was evening, and there was morning, the seventh day. And so lots of people understand that to mean that God's seventh day of rest continues. Now, we live in a non-finished seventh-day rest. And so what all of that means is God commands us to rest. 
to enter into his rest. Uh, And one day in seven, we're to remember that he is the creator. He is the sustainer and we're not. One day in seven, we stop and recognise that he's made us, he keeps it all going, not us. And you see, as we rest, we show that we're trusting him. Resting is an expression of trust, or as verse 10 puts it, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. You see, the two go together. To enter God's rest means actually letting go of your own work, your own striving, your own earning. Entering God's rest means letting him be creator and sustainer and you can let go of that. But this is more than just a passage that talks about getting our work-life balance right or keeping the number of hours we work under control. That's good advice, but it's not going to save you. The preacher is concerned about our eternal destiny, our salvation. Jesus pays for it. Jesus works and earns our salvation as our high priest when he offers himself as the one-time only sacrifice for sin. And God promises that that work is effective when he raises Jesus from the dead. And verse 3 of chapter 4 says that it's as we believe those promises that we enter rest now. Verse 10 of chapter 4 says that as we enter God's rest, we can rest from our own work, which is not just taking off a day in seven. It's about ceasing the effort to save yourself. It's about stopping the good works that you think will try to earn God's approval. Resting from your own efforts means let God be God and accept his free grace as a gift. Now that's what the Jewish Christian hearers were being tempted to do in in going back to Judaism. They were being tempted to, to, to work for their salvation rather than rest in Jesus' salvation. Now you would think that would be easy to rest from your own work of saving yourself. But it's not. It's actually hard work to rest. You see, our natural inclination is to work for things. Every other world religion is about earning your reward. And when someone does something for you, we just have this inbuilt desire to want to repay them. I don't want to be in your debt. We're proud creatures. But did you notice verse 11 of chapter 4? Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest (laughs) so that no one will fall. It sounds like nonsense, doesn't it? Work hard to rest. I guess it could mean you know you've got a holiday coming up so you work really hard to clear your desk so you can actually rest. But that's not what he's talking about. It could mean work hard in this life so you can rest in heaven. That's certainly true. But I think what he's saying is that we have to work hard to remind ourselves to rest in what Jesus has done. Keep reminding ourselves of the goodness and the grace of God. 
It's one of the things we're going to do when we take the Lord's Supper in a few moments. We will remember what Jesus has done and be grateful for it and rest in it rather than our own work. Work hard to rejoice in grace. Work hard to remember that Jesus paid it all, that our debt is paid in full. There is nothing owing. There is nothing we can contribute. Work hard to let go of striving, (laughs) of worry. Instead, hold on to your confidence. Hold on to Jesus, our pioneer, our high priest, our brother. He is the one who's able to help. You are not able to help. He is able to help. Jesus invites us in Matthew 11, 28 to 30, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus invites us. King David invites us into his experience of what it means to rest in God. Is this your experience? My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Think about the difference between a three-year-old nestling under its mother's arm, content, fed, and a six-month-old baby starving for milk. I want, I want, I want. But our soul is to be restful that God will give us what we need. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. I've spoken a little bit uh, each of the last few weeks about our mission as a church, uh, that we're encouraging people to grow as followers of Jesus and that a growing follower of Jesus will uh, have five characteristics. Uh, They will love God. They will love other people. Uh, They will be shaped by God's word. They will serve one another and they'll be on mission to tell people about Jesus. We're going to think about the first of those today. The first, the most important, is loving God. Jesus was asked what the most important commandment was and we actually said two, but he said the first, He said the most important uh, was love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second is like it, he said. Love your neighbour. God commands us to love him first. And we can encourage each other to do that as we study the Bible together, as we pray for one another, as we encourage one another, as we meet here in church, as we meet in small home group Bible studies. We want to be lovers of God who are repentant and grateful and joyful and prayerful and contented, zealous, single-minded or filled. And today let's be lovers of God who rest in him, who rejoice in him. May God make us people like that. Amen.
Uh, I'm going to pray, and uh, I'll pray about the sermon, and uh, I'll continue praying for uh, things in general as well. So please join me 